Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who has to carry both an iPhone and an Android phone and in my spare time, I want to know what is happening to the fate of Huawei. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology and media in Asia and today I have Brian Ma, Vice President from IDC. Welcome Brian and it's great to have you back again. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Bernard. It's been a very interesting time because originally we wanted to talk a little bit about smartphone trends and then the whole Huawei thing broke out. But then before that, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Yeah, thanks. You're right. It's been a very busy past couple of weeks. Since we last spoke, I think it was, or since that last episode, I think it might have been even over ago, right? We were talking about the rise of Chinese smartphones. Obviously, a lot has happened since then. Xiaomi has since gone public. We've still had Oppo and Vivo on the rise. But as you point out, Huawei has been hit with some very, very big problems, right? So I've been spending a lot of time, obviously, fielding client questions around that. I've been doing a lot of analysis on that, as well as the impact from the broader trade wars. And of course, even if we look at the broader smartphone ecosystem and developments happening there, there have been other things going on too, right? Foldables, if you even remember those, it seems like old news now in light of all the Huawei stuff that's, that's been happening. But yeah, foldables are obviously still a topic that folks are looking forward to in the industry. And I think that was the point because for me, I usually like to do the podcast a few months a bit further away from the main news that breaks so that we can have a much clearer picture of what is really going on. But I think we'll go to the main subject of the day first, which is the US ban of Huawei and its impact. Maybe to start, and maybe to help the audience out there to get a sense of what is going on. Can you offer an introduction to the recent US action on Huawei? Yeah, sure. So last month, the US government had placed Huawei on its so-called entity list, which basically meant that companies on this list are at risk of having activities that are against US national security interests, right? So the South China Morning posted this great story where they analyzed all the companies on the list. They found about 143 entities from China. And interestingly, there are generally no phone vendors on there. Aside from Huawei, Huawei is the only one that sticks up on there. And I actually suspect it's more so because of the network infrastructure business uh, than for the phones. But nonetheless, Huawei is on that list and it's been impacting their ability to source from U.S. suppliers, including not just semiconductors and other hardware components, but in my opinion, most importantly, Google, specifically the Google mobile services that Huawei needs as it sells its devices overseas. I probably should make a disclaimer that what we're going to be talking about is actually very dependent on the different news sources. I know you already mentioned South China Morning Post, there's Bloomberg, there is Reuters and Wall Street Journal and even many other portals out there like BBC and CNN. So I think for our audience, whatever we say, it could have been changed by the time you listen to this podcast. So maybe to start off with just understanding the implications first. Upon Huawei on the US blacklist, the action has already forced Google cutting the Android support for future devices. By then, I mean the Android enterprise services and then the arm not supplying future chipsets to Huawei. What are your perspectives on Huawei for both the smartphone and carrier networks business moving forward then? Sure, I'll focus on smartphones in particular since that's where I spend most of my time, but I do have some information on the network side as well too that I'll supplement with. But so starting with the smartphone side, yeah, this is a very critical blow for them. To be specific, it's not so much Android enterprise support as it is Google mobile services. So I think where there has been a lot of confusion is, you know, the easy way to say the message is that it's Google has cut off Android support, but actually the OS, don't forget, is open source. There is, and that's what basically most of the phone vendors, including Huawei themselves, use within China where they don't use Google services to begin with, right? 
So uh, it's not so much the OS that's been impacted as it is the Google mobile services. Now that's the layer that Google puts on top that it has a commercial contract with for many of these OEMs. So that includes not just the Google Play Store, but first party Google apps. So YouTube, Google Maps, Google Translate, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And these, if you think about it, for most countries outside China are very, very critical in terms of what we use phones for on a day-to-day basis. I mean, there certainly are substitute applications like Bing and Bing Maps or whatever it might be. But let's be honest, for most purposes, we generally don't use those types of solutions. We prefer to use the Google version. And that's why if you know Huawei is going to go ahead here and try to sell Android phones, because they can technically, again, still have the OS, Right? They can try to sell Android phones through the open source program, but they don't have that commercial license anymore to deploy first-party Google apps. And that's the thing that really, really hurts them. I think some really good examples to keep in mind from history, if you look at things like BlackBerry 10, which was actually, it was based on an OS called QNX, right? Uh, But they had an Android runtime on there so that you could run Android apps. Adding to that list of examples, Nokia X, which was also an open source version of Android, but they substituted Google services with Bing and all this sort of stuff. And even Amazon's Fire OS, right? Again, it's technically an Android OS, but it doesn't have access to Google services. You look at these three examples of operating systems that technically are Android, or at least can run Android apps, but that don't have the Google services on top. And in each of those examples, you can see they just they just don't have the appeal towards users when you can't get access to these services. And that's why it's such a crippling blow to all this. Now, in theory, yes, you could sideload some of these applications on. It's not that easy for everyone to do, but in theory, you could do it. But even then, I raise a question on whether or not third-party apps who make a lot of these API calls to various Google services, how well that's going to function. There's a lot of applications that make calls to the Google Play Store, they make calls to Google Play Services, and that's a big thing that really hurts Huawei's ambitions as they go overseas. Now, I think, Bernard, you were also alluding to Android Enterprise and some of the things like updates and patches. That, of course, is part of the challenge as well, too. They might not get it as quickly when it goes through the open source leg. Nonetheless, in my opinion, I think one of the things that really, really hurts them is those lack of Google mobile services. Now, of course, it's not just the Google and the Android side here. You need to keep in mind the hardware components as well, too. I think one thing that has been, that probably hasn't gotten much attention as it should is the RF front ends, the radio frequency front ends, right? It's basically everything between the antenna and the baseband in the phone. This is something that is supplied primarily by American suppliers, Skyworks, Corvo, Broadcom, and Qualcomm in particular. And for, if you look at the various lists of components within a smartphone, Huawei probably find alternative non-American suppliers for many of those components, but for RF front ends, that is going to be a difficult one. There, there are other ones. You know, I think it was Unisoc and another Chinese supplier that do have some RF front ends, but they tend to be older generation, not so much 4G and 5G. So if they are going to produce a 4G or 5G phone, they need these RF front ends from these American suppliers. So that is a bling blow, even if they've built up a bit of a stockpile here, as they pointed out, where they could try to buffer some of this. And then finally, what you had alluded to is ARM, right? So if 
arm is not able to license its instruction set to the high silicon semiconductor division at Huawei, that also becomes a big problem, right? I mean, sure, they can sell phones for another year or so using the existing Kirin processor that they have now, but will they have the access to the instruction set and any other designs that they may be using from ARM in future Kirin processors. And that could be another big issue as well too. So it's several big impacts here on the smartphone business. On the network infrastructure side, there are some American suppliers like Intel and Xilinx in particular that also hit Huawei in that regard or that get, get impacted by Huawei due to this blacklist. But yeah, again, my, my focus is more on smartphones. So we'll probably keep the conversation moving more in that direction. But yeah, you can see that it is a, it is a big crippling blow. It seems to me from what I'm hearing you saying is that the future for Huawei looks very bleak given the recent trade tensions. So where would they go forward from here? Would they lose the global smartphone market? I mean, if you just want to use Huawei in China, that's no problem because the China mobile ecosystem is totally different from the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. So from a global perspective, it definitely hurts them. About half of Huawei's volumes are based on overseas markets. And again, without those Google mobile services, it makes it really difficult, even if they could get all the hardware components that they wanted to. But, you know, without those Google services, that's what makes it tough for them to get that number one spot. As you point out, within China, it's not so much of an issue, again, assuming they can get the hardware components. My point is that the lack of Google services is not as bad of an issue as long as, you know, they still have access to the whole Chinese internet ecosystem, particularly WeChat must be ported to whatever OS they're going to be using, right? If they, they can still use the Android open source version, Huawei has been said to have been developing its own OS. It's not clear exactly what the kernel is and whether it can run Android apps or not. But, you know, if it is something like a Tizen, like Samsung's Tizen, for instance, you know, it's obviously having the ecosystem of Chinese apps is a critical part of this. And in particular, Tencent with WeChat. Now, I think to your as well in terms of what does this do towards its global ambitions? Well, I think it was about a, you know, it was is in recent months where Huawei was saying that they're planning to become or they have the ambition to become the number one smartphone player overtaking Samsung. So let's frame this with a bit of context in terms of numbers, right? In 2018, I'll give you full year 2018 because that, that negates the seasonality between quarters. So if we look at Full year 2018, Huawei was number three at 210 million units. That's still about 80 million units away from Samsung, the leader at 290 million. Now, Huawei did say a few months ago, you know, they're, or at least they're allegedly planning to have some very ambitious increases going into 2019 to get closer to Samsung at that 290. But again, with, you know, the lack of access to this American technology, it does make it much more difficult for them to do so. Even if we do some quick, highly oversimplified back of the envelope calculations here, if you look at about half of their volumes going overseas and assuming that more or less most of that goes away because there's just lack of consumer appeal when you don't have Google services. I mean, yeah, there are a couple of countries here and there like Korea or Russia that do have more services, but let's just assume most of these markets generally would not buy a phone without Google services, then that significantly impacts them. And again, as of last year, they were still 80 million units away from Samsung, assuming that they were all keeping their same volume. So uh, you can see where this is a, again, back to my earlier point about it being a crippling blow, right? This certainly impacts them quite a bit. 
I think what's interesting as well, too, is if we take a step back and look at how this sits within broad trade tensions, you know, I'm not sure if the phone business is really the target of the U.S. government. I Just on the side, I suspect that the government's motives, the U.S. government's motives were still more about 5G structure and how that impacts, you know, the economies and a lot of showmanship in this trade war. But nonetheless, you know, what has the, the impact to their phone business definitely hits Huawei where it hurts. And that's where it's a big problem. So what you're saying is that whatever the action on Huawei that is putting it on the blacklist was not so much actually targeting the smartphone business, but actually more the carrier networks business, which make up the bulk of Huawei's real revenues, given that they are actually still a private company, but giving their financials out every quarter like a public listed company. That's my hunch, yeah. And I don't know if we're ever going to be able to prove that either way, but I suspect that the bigger issue here is you know, being able to hold back Huawei from, and China uh, in terms of its advances in 5G and what kind of economic benefits result from an early deployment of 5G and a whole trade imbalance, that kind of thing. I think, I suspect that that was really more of the intention. Plus, Huawei is a bit of an easy target, right? They're a big, critical company in the Chinese economy, high visibility company, and with a lot of murky ownership structure or with a murky ownership structure that makes it easy question them around, you know, national security and, and spying and all that kind of thing. So I suspect that the phones, phone business is actually just a, a side casualty in all this, but nonetheless, it's obviously a very big one considering how big the consumer business has gotten within Huawei. I'm very curious to know. So, so if this had not happened, will Huawei actually be able to achieve its ambition to be the global number one smartphone player by this year or maybe next year? Yeah, they were certainly on that kind of trajectory, right? You know, while I mentioned earlier last year, they were still 80 million away. The targets that we were looking at for them were getting them pretty close to Samsung. And you look at just the consumer sentiment and reception to their products has been quite positive up until this point, right? If you look at all the all the discussion around the progress they've made around cameras, around the zoom lenses, uh, and with a lot of interest around on-device AI and how that helped do better graphics rendering for games, and plus all the stuff that they've been talking about around signal reception, and that kind of thing, they've made a lot of impressive progress. And so seeing how aggressive that they were with that, you know, even if they didn't overtake Samsung in this past year, they were certainly within very close striking distance. And I guess that's probably where, again, back to this point, it, where it also hurts them quite a bit. We also know that Huawei also built laptops. Are they going to be successful with those or is that going to also become part of the casualty with the trade tensions going on now between US and China? Yeah, exactly. That's another uh, casualty in all this. Now, we do need to keep in mind that their laptop business is relatively small, but they have been successful in China with those laptops in particular. They've been doing quite well because the designs they use something, they use like three by two aspect ratios, which, which has resonated quite well with users like to be able to see more scrolling vertically on the screen. Also, Huawei has been quite aggressive in terms of its branding. They're just the industrial design. They're thin and light. They're, they're ultra thin. They, they look quite nice in terms of products. They were doing quite well with those within China, together with, by the way, Xiaomi and for that matter, even, even Lenovo. They, Lenovo has a product line called Xiaomi. That, that has been doing quite well with the younger generation of users, if you will. So these three vendors have been doing 
well with these ultra slim laptops within China. Huawei, of course, has trying to push those into other markets. They were in sale in the U.S. for a while as well, too, within Microsoft stores. And of course, they had ambitions with markets like Western Europe, where of course Huawei has already been quite strong from a mobile phone perspective. By the way, that that's really where a lot of that impact is going to be with that earlier discussion we just had about their global ambitions for phones, because where Huawei is geographically strong outside of China is in Western Europe. Sorry for the digression there, but to come back to your point, laptops can be impacted by this as well too. Obviously, it's dependent on a lot of American components, particularly as well as Microsoft, but probably quite a few others within that mix as well. As of yesterday, I just recall that I've read in the Wall Street Journal that China is now planning to put Microsoft on their blacklist, basically hit them back on that. But coming back to the conversation, right? Who are going to benefit from Huawei's current troubles in the smartphone market? I mean, the most obvious is Samsung, right? Because will they get a comeback because of this? Or does it, what about the other vendors, for example, Apple, Xiaomi, Oppo, Vivo, and the rest out there? Yeah. So you're right in that Samsung is the most obvious one to be able to gain from this. Samsung has the widest breadth into the product range. You know, they do everything from high-end flagship phones all the way down to low-end affordable products. Whereas if you look at someone like an Oppo, Vivo, and even a Xiaomi, they tend to be more concentrated into particular price bands. Even if their ambition is to be much wider, their products tend to be, you know, let's say in the case of Oppo tend to be more mid-range. It's tended to be more low-end with the Redmi line, even though Xiaomi has had the ambitions to be more of a flagship player. Samsung is the more direct replacement, if you will, for the wake that's been left by Huawei. But also, the reason why I point that out is because Samsung is the one that is strong with mature markets and channels. So to this earlier point about Western Europe, Samsung is basically the vendor to beat in Western Europe as well. In Western Europe, it's largely a triumvirate, if you will, right? The, the three players that do really well with the launch format retail stores and the telcos in Western Europe, it's Samsung and Apple and Huawei. With the vacancy left by Huawei or potential vacancy left by Huawei in this, that's where Samsung stands the game the most. Now, yes, of course, there uh, may be potential for some of these other smaller Chinese players to come into play. Yeah, the Oppo and some of these guys stand an opportunity to gain a bit. But to be honest, they haven't been quite as successful in Western Europe just yet. I mean, yes, Xiaomi has some cult followings in markets like Spain, but they still aren't that big in Western Europe yet. And so really, I think the bigger opportunity here is for Samsung. Uh, by the way, related to this, because I, I know this question has been coming up quite a bit as well too, is whether the other Chinese phone vendors stand to be possibly on the blacklist as well, right? So far, they aren't. I suspect that they won't be because, again, to the earlier point that these guys aren't as high visibility as Huawei. They don't have a network infrastructure business like Huawei does. They also don't, you know, the, the whole story about potential spying and national security is a lot easier to sell on someone like a Huawei rather than one of these smaller guys. So I don't think these guys are going to be on the list just yet. It doesn't mean that they won't be, but I suspect that they should be okay for the time being. I'm not so familiar with this, but I know Xiaomi is a public listed company. Is Oppo Vivo a public listed company? Because if you're publicly listed, it's actually very difficult to hide your structure or the way your earnings and everything from the markets. That's why they might not be on the blacklist because they, they don't touch anything that's close to national security from that point of view. Ah, interesting. Yeah, so Oppo and Vivo are privately held out of the Bubu Gao Group, BBK, as it's more popularly known outside. But 
I suspect that the reason why the crosshairs have been on Huawei's back is more so because of the network infrastructure business. I mean, yeah, the private ownership may be part of it, but I suspect it's really more just about the, the network infrastructure. I think this is probably an ongoing story. So before we move to the next slide, are there any things that you think will be happening for the next steps for this particular ban happen? Do you think that there might be a reversal of the ban or is it here to stay? If it's here to stay, then what will be the implications moving forward? That means we'll probably just lose its entire consumer business as a result of that. Well, most of it. So within China, they can still push ahead, at least to, to the extent that they can still get hardware components. And I think what will get interesting as well, too, is what is the consequent impact to Apple? Huawei's already been gaining quite a bit within China. Now they're further riding this wave of nationalism that can further help in this regard. And let's say Huawei just cranks it up further in China just to offset their losses overseas. That's going to put further pressure on Apple, assuming, again, nothing changes from this point forward, right? And that's, that's a big uncertainty right now. What happens if... China then implements some kind of a ban that could further impact things. So there's going to be more pressure either way on Apple. But I also would put a disclaimer on all those too. I do think that the sense of nationalism, we do need to be careful about not getting too carried away with it. We do need to keep in mind that Apple is still a status symbol. It is still a desired luxury brand there. So it's going to depend on who you ask, right? Not all users are going to say, oh, I'm not going to buy an Apple just because it's American and I'm going to support my homegrown company. But of course, there are those users that, that will be. I think maybe one way to also put this in a bit of context is think about previous incidents of nationalism in China over the many years, particularly the anti-Japanese sentiment from what was it, the mid-2000s, late-2000s. You know, back then, that anti-Japanese sentiment was quite fierce. And I don't think we're quite at that stage here with anti-American sentiment yet. Although, gosh, by day things keep changing. You know, I may end up eating these words later, depending on how things develop. I think the one on Apple is going to be difficult also for the Chinese government. After all, I think Apple is one of the largest employers for Apple's manufacturing ecosystem. So if they start doing something to Apple, it could be mutually assured destruction for them as well. Yeah, agreed, agreed. So I don't think it'll come down to that. I think even Tim Cook was on a TV interview this past weekend saying that he's not expecting there to be any problems, or at least not yet. Yeah, gosh, these days anything could happen. And sorry, back to your earlier point as well, too, it can go, could there be a reversal? Well, we've already seen a little bit of reprieve, right? We've seen a, a bit of a 90-day extension. Yeah, Huawei would at least get patches for the next version of Android for existing products. And IEEE finally let Huawei researchers contribute again to their discussion. So there's been a little bit of reprieve, but minor in the grand scheme of things. I think it'll be interesting to see where it really goes. And I guess that's what it's so interesting because it's so darn unpredictable. We're not sure what, what is going to happen next. And I think waiting on bated breath here, checking, checking tweets and headlines and whatever kind of development comes out because it's, it's so unpredictable. Yeah, the problem with the Trump administration is that whenever they put this kind of big blanket bans, it will start to walk back after a few weeks or because they just realize that, look, we just pull off a pretty massive thing and there's a lot of pushback even internally. So the walking backs will be actually far more interesting than hearing the headlines about what gets banned because you can see that they're also starting to realize, oops, it actually affects us too. So it's going to get into that kind of situation, but we just don't know where the boundary really stands. But I think this is going to be a continuing story. But since I 
I got you here because I probably should let my audience know that we actually have an earlier conversation when we talk about some of the interesting smartphone trends that's going on, even talking about foldables. Since you are here, I want to pick your brain on this. So based on our last conversation, beginning from smartphones, who are the current brands that are leading globally now? I think Samsung, Huawei is already on the top. And then following that, who are the real players now? Sure. So I'll give you a snapshot of 2018. Samsung at number one, Apple at number two, Huawei number three, Xiaomi number four, Oppo number five. Now, keep in mind that Huawei, or at least I think a lot of folks have been talking about how Huawei has surpassed Apple for that number two spot. That depends on seasonality. In first quarter 19, Huawei was indeed at number two. That is a quarter where Apple is more suppressed. So this is a case where, you know, again, if we look, and by the way, in first quarter 19, the rankings were also different in terms of Vivo being in number five instead of Oppo. But nonetheless, it is a case where you've got basically those three big three or four big Chinese vendors plus Samsung and Apple. I read recently a Benedict Evans about peak smartphones. One caveat to that is that from most reports, what I have been gathering is that India is now the only major growth engine for smartphones for the next probably two, three years, bringing in another probably 100 million mobile users online. Will that growth continue in the next two, three years from now? Or where are we with India? Yeah, you're right. India is a still a good growth market, still putting in double-digit growth rates, which is good to see in a, in a market that is declining globally. But last year, we had India growing 14%, 1.4, and we're expecting this year to come in at about 12%, and holding at a pretty close kind of a growth rate in the next two, three years as well, at least getting in around that 10 to 12% kind of a range. So it is a market where data has become much more plentiful and very affordable. It's helping to fuel a lot of this. You've got a lot of these Chinese vendors that are in there for that matter. Xiaomi, for instance, is doing great over there. We do also need to keep in mind that the average selling prices of these phones are much lower. I think the average selling price is about 160 US dollars. And so these are lower phones. So those numbers I gave you earlier were in unit terms. And in dollar terms, it'd obviously be much different because of the lower average selling prices. Are we in the period of peak smartphone? Will innovations on the smartphone be incremental or are there any tech which we are not aware of on the horizon? that will shift the smartphone to the next level. Yeah, I do think it is a case where this, you know, we're already looking at a case where we're all holding a bunch of glass rectangles in our hands, right? In many ways, smartphones are already commoditized. And the question is, what's next, right? Do we move towards something like foldables or even wearable devices? And even if we look at today's existing smartphone market, look at the kind of activity and investments that are going into still just how do we improve the smartphone from here? I mean, name a single person who is happy with battery life on their phone today or how quickly the phone can charge and that kind of thing. There's a lot of progress that can be made around battery life, around even screens. You look at what, what a lot of the vendors are doing here around getting rid of notches and how to handle the cameras in that regard. What people are doing around photography to that earlier point about all the progress that Huawei has been making around photography and whether Google or Huawei is, is better at taking photos on a phone and how close we can get to SLR like quality and that kind of thing. I think there's actually, you know, one can make an argument, there's still a lot of stuff that can be done with smartphones today. But yes, in the grand scheme of things, 
we do have a situation where, yeah, these are, you know, many of these devices all look very similar. They all function very similarly. We are in a, and it is a relatively commoditized market. But then there are things that are on the peripheral side with the smartphones, right? I mean, for example, if you look, think in terms of the Apple ecosystem, you think about the AirPods and then the Apple Watch. There are peripherals around it. Would you think that there would be a technology that comes along the way, for example, maybe in augmented reality or even VR? Sure. The question is whether you consider those discreetly separate categories or as complementary as an accessory. It comes to, I mean, it makes a statement about the broader ecosystem and how we use devices, right? Because it's not really about the hardware at the end of the day. It's what we want to accomplish through workflows and through applications. Do you do this through a phone that connects to Samsung X to a keyboard and a big display? Do you do this through a phone? You know, recently there are AR headsets that connect to your phone. Move forward from there. You know, these are physical hardware properties. Ultimately, what we want to do is achieve these workflows through these various apps. The question is how we render those. Is it done on a big screen, small screen, a wearable screen, a screen on your wrist? Is it a screen for that matter? Is it done by voice? I think that's what gets exciting to watch in the upcoming years because we will see some changes in how this is done. Where I should point out, we're already in the habit of tapping on these little five, six inch panes of glass not always the ideal way for us to be doing things either. And so can we go hands-free with something wearable or with voice interfaces? Or do we you know, do things like plugging back into a keyboard and mouse because of legacy applications that require that kind of interface? We talk a lot about the Android ecosystem, but what about Apple? They are already having a starting decline in China and the iPhone is actually going towards a downturn for them. And also now, given that they're in services, what are your thoughts about Apple within the greater smartphone ecosystem? Because they themselves, itself, they only own less than 20% of the market, but in terms of the profits, they are actually the largest. Yeah, and obviously the, what's critical for Apple is its pivot towards services, right? I think from a hardware perspective, I wouldn't really expect any huge changes in terms of share uh, against the Android vendors. I think they'll be able to hold their own. They, they obviously still do quite a bit of innovation around the hardware side, but I think everybody, you know, all investors are kind of, their eyes are on how well can pivot towards these services. And the services, not just from a revenue perspective, but also because it helps further reinforce the ecosystem within Apple that keeps people within the Apple ecosystem, right? So I think that'll be important to watch. Now, again, I think in China, you know, we'll, we'll need to see where this goes as well, too, because there could be a bigger impact there. But again, it's, it's rather unpredictable to see where, where things are going at this before I ask you anything about innovations on the smartphone, but I want to ask this recent question because it happened and I think it just died off pretty quickly. Can you talk a little bit about the Samsung's foldable phone fiasco and what is this whole foldable thing and do you think that is still going to happen or is going to be totally quashed as a, just an invention that just came by and then just disappeared? Yeah, it's, it's funny we bring up foldables. It's almost like ancient history now that we've gotten so sidetracked with Huawei. But yeah, exactly. Foldables are supposed to be that next big thing, right? The promise being that you could suddenly double your screen size or, you know, have so much big screen size, but be able to still keep it pocketable and easily transportable. So Huawei and Samsung have been the two vendors in particular that were showing off their products at MWC. There were others that were there as well too, but they were the ones that were most visible and suggesting that they were going to ship later in this year. Now, all of this has been delayed, right? Samsung had gotten some review units out just, you know, a week or two before they had gotten ready to ship. And suddenly all these defects came up where, you know, people were peeling off 
was one layer that looked like a screen protector, but was actually a key part of the screen and it, it made the screen fail. There were other reviewers who had debris getting in from the side and created problems with the screens. And Samsung indefinitely put their foldables on hold. Now, Huawei wasn't saying anything. This was all before all this US stuff happened with Huawei, but obviously Huawei's design was one that was outward folding, if you will. And that then made it raise some more questions as well too about the reliability of the screen. If the screen was on the outside of the phone, it was even more likely to be subject to abuse from debris and scratches and peeling or whatever it might be. So it'll be interesting to see where uh, Huawei ultimately ended up with that. But nonetheless, I think, yeah, the, the longer term vision here for foldables was uh, this could, could potentially unlock new usage models in terms of what you could do with these sorts of devices. I mean, so far, the question is, why do I even need a foldable? You look at existing usage models today, some of the ones that have come out, the obvious one is something like Netflix, or at least watching video, right? Suddenly you have a much bigger screen where you can watch it. There were some use cases of games, for instance, particularly in online battle arenas, where that additional real estate could get quite interesting. It was also a question was, is this just technology in search of a problem? Do we really need that extra real estate? And I don't think the answer was quite obvious just yet. Aside from things like videos and a couple games, like I mentioned earlier, I think, the, by the way, the some of the vendors have been suggesting that even just simple web browsing is much better when you have double the screen real estate. Now, was that necessarily compelling enough for people to pay $2,000 for, which was what Samsung was initially offering their price at? No, you know, that clearly we're still in very early adopter days where prices are high, usage models weren't clear, but I think where folks were getting excited was the potential of what kind of usage models and, you know, what kind of usage models this could unlock or unleash by suddenly having the additional screen real estate and eventually prices would come down after. It was never something that I expected to take off right away. I frankly had always expected it to take several years. And this was not just because of hardware challenges. I mean, we always knew hardware would be a challenge just in terms of the yields of the screens, the reliability of the screens, the hinge and, and all that kind of stuff. But for me, the big issue with foldables was the software. How do applications adapt and adjust to the screen sizes. Most Android apps are written for a five or six inch portrait mode kind of usage and don't necessarily dynamically expand that well to the large screens. You look at Android tablet apps, for instance, there's a, you know, and Google's been trying for years to get Android phone developers to write their apps for tablets. They still really don't do a good job. More importantly though, it's not just about dynamically adjusting the apps to this larger screen size. It's thinking about, okay, now that you have a larger screen size, let's completely rethink how the app works. And that I think is a part that takes time. I, I wasn't expecting that ecosystem of foldable optimized apps to hit that critical mass for a good number of years either. I guess I'm not as worried about these initial setbacks that Samsung has found. I, like I mentioned, I knew that there were going to be some hardware glitches along the way. Granted, not as drastically as this, but I think, you know, it's no surprise that foldables were going to take some time. It's hardware challenge, it's price challenge, and most importantly, it's application and usage model challenge. I think those kinds of things can get sorted out in the upcoming years. Without a usable screen at this point, products aren't even going to hit the market yet. So I think the, yeah, the, the market, the industry has hit pause on this one for now as well too. And especially with Huawei out of the picture, that even further sets back the industry on foldables.
Then what about foldable laptops like the one Lenovo showed off recently? And I mean, there are dual screen laptops like the HP Omen X2X and the ones that are Asus at Intel or at Computex, right? I mean, I am a gamer. I love two screens. I mean, at home or at work, I will use two screens. So how does that come in then from the PC side? Yeah, well, similar concern, right? Particularly around the software and how well it adapts to those second screens. We do need to keep in mind that when it comes to a dual screen laptop or a foldable laptop, and I mean a full dual screen, no keyboard, that input method becomes one of my biggest concerns, right? Typing on glass is generally not fun, even though we've kind of learned to deal with it, but it's certainly still not as optimized optimal, I should say, as a tactile keyboard, right? And so if we're at least going to use these laptops using existing applications today, well, existing applications are written for keyboard and mouse. And so going to these kinds of foldable laptops becomes a challenge when you don't have that kind of an input method. Now, some of these OEMs have had a, you know, their solutions have been Hey, we'll have a separate keyboard that you can carry along with it. Yeah, but then you got to carry two pieces around, right? So I'm not quite sure how all is going to work out unless the applications change, right? If our workflows change where the input method is no longer mouse and keyboard based, then yeah, then that of course changes things. But that's much easier said than done, right? How do you do the input through gestures, is it through voice, whatever it might be? Or is it a completely different workflow? And if so, what do we still do about things like spreadsheets where we do need numpad entry and mouse mice to, to point to a certain cell. Now, I will say, however, that I've been, historically, I've been quite a skeptic about dual screen or foldable notebooks. But recently, I've been, I guess, turning for the more positive in terms of where this could potentially go. If you think about how a dual screen laptop works in portrait mode, that can suddenly get a lot more interesting, right? To your point about having more screen real estate, if you were to carry one of these kinds of large 13, 14 inch dual screen systems around, and then you put it up on your desk vertically, like a book, if you will, and you somehow have still have an easy, elegant way to do your entry through a keyboard and mouse or whatever it might be, that suddenly gets quite a bit more interesting because you can do, you know, suddenly have the power to do a lot more with dual screens. But again, I, I don't think existing product or developments that we have, you know, in the pipeline right now are, are at that stage yet where that's something that can be commercialized successfully. So I don't think we're quite there yet. That's why I think that these dual screen laptops, they're more just for bragging rights and for attention getting to show that some of these are innovating. I'm not quite convinced that they are going to be commercially successful just yet. What could get interesting is not so much the full dual screen laptops, but some of these smaller dual screens, right? You mentioned Asus earlier, which had a, a second screen going across the, the upper half of the keyboard, or how do you describe it? Upper half of the bottom half of the clamshell. Very way of explaining it. Uh, but maybe the better example is Intel with their Honeycomb Glacier concept, right? They were showing this off. It's not a commercialized product yet, but one of the things that it did nicely and arguably even better than what Asus did, it raised that second screen up a bit and then it brings the main screen up to eye level so you're no longer slouching over. The question is, of course, what's the usage model? What are you going to do with that second screen, right? It could be a, you know, it could be something like a control panel for your various components. It could be, let's say, in your gaming use case, you talk about uh, maybe it's a small map or maybe it is a live stream of a game. But what also gets interesting as well, too, is you think about business use cases where we are on a, let's say, a video 
conference call. You're holding your main video conference call on the main screen. You've got slides on the second screen. You know, I'm sure we've all been in that situation where we're in a web, a Skype call or a Zoom meeting or a, or a WebEx or whatever it is, and we're trying to toggle between video of the people versus the slides. You know, there, there could be some interesting things that can happen around there, but does that alone necessarily drive a purchase of a dual screen? And, uh, you know, especially again with potential questions around reliability and debris, various hinges and all those moving parts. Those questions, I think, have, uh, you know, those still need to be settled as well, too. And I don't think we're not at that stage yet where this is ready to take off just yet. But it is, I guess, fun to see a lot of the experimentation that is happening in this space. Interesting, because we just gone out from uh, Apple WWDC, which happened two, three days ago. And I think they have already started to shift iPad away from the iPhone. So now iPad has its own operating system. And I think they have been doing a lot more things on the iPad that I think a lot of people do not realize, even to the point that people were rumors talking about you could use a mouse on the iPad very soon. So probably the input methods is, is still in the horizon that to be able to get this dual screen effect, maybe that's where it will be going until somebody can find the actual jobs to be done for the, for the dual screen laptops or tablets or even phones. Do you, do you see that happening? Yeah, well, I mean, if it means anything, I I think people certainly want the extra sc- screen real estate if they can get it, if it doesn't compromise the portability, right? You know, one of the things that Apple did at WWDC was a whole sidecar thing where you could use an iPad as a second screen for your Mac, right? Which got a lot of cheers and I think people are quite excited about. It means you've got to carry a second device as well, too. So how do we, we'd all love to have the screen state, make it foldable to make it more portable but again how do you solve that input method doesn't mean you have to carry something else so brian many thanks for coming on the show and i think it's a pretty long conversation we have and it's really great and i definitely have to be much more regular in getting you come back so in closing my first question to you can you recommend a book movie podcast or anything that has made an impact to your work and personal life (laughs) i'm kind of giggling before i answer because i don't think my response is going to be anything that's it's not going to sound very profound or actual and i don't think it's even very tech related or Asia or business related, but Old Town Road by Lil Nas X and now Billy Ray Cyrus, I think it is quite fascinating, not just because it's a catchy tune, but because of the way it all developed so quickly and using many social networks today, right? I mean, you have you know, as a base of the song, it was actually originally a Nine Inch Nails sample that a producer in Holland, I think it was, that had, you know, he, he builds uh, musical inputs and, and, and creates uh, samples and tracks that created the foundation of the song. And then this guy, Lil Max, starts creating lyrics on top of it and makes it funny. And it ca- caught on on TikTok. Uh, and it went viral on TikTok from there. You know, he, he was communicating with many of these influencers through TikTok. Twitter and through these various other platforms and it just went viral and then Billy Ray Cyrus's wife gets a hold of it and Billy Ray Cyrus gets interested and then Billy Ray Cyrus does does lyrics on top of it and now it's just this huge thing. I think it is quite fascinating to see how that thing rocketed up. The uh, I think it was the New York Times that did a great video dissecting the origins of, of how this all rocketed up there. So do a search for that on YouTube. It's quite interesting to see how it all came up, but quite fascinating to see, again, how quickly these kinds of things, just these, these very disparate things, I guess you could argue, all kind of came together so quickly. And again, kind of fueled by the modern age of where we are today with social networks and and how this all gets communicated. So maybe not so much an impact, 
work in personal life. I will say that it's definitely gotten, it's definitely been an earworm in my head. <laughs> you know, that tune keeps running through my head every other day. And my kids love the song too. They keep singing it and dancing to it. You're being modest. In fact, I think your recommendation really tops to be probably one of the top five recommendations I've heard. So my next question, how do my audience find you? Yeah, easiest way is on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Brian Bima. That's Brian on the Y. So B-R-Y-A-N-B-M-A. And uh, look forward to seeing you guys online. Thanks for listening. I highly recommend you to follow Brian Ma because I followed him in every quarter I look for at his numbers, where his tweets are just brilliant in terms of showing all the whole smartphone market. Definitely, you can Google me at Bernard Leung. And this podcast is co-produced by Carol In and myself. And of course, you can find us in almost every podcast platform from Spotify, Luminary, Himalaya, and iTunes, of course. Give us all your feedback. And Ryan, let's catch up again sometime soon. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me, Bernard.